to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. And then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I, will, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may, be welcome, uh, they may welcome you into eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but I like to know things where they are when I need them. There was a time when I had virtually everything at my fingertips. When I was a kid, they said that I had a photographic memory. Names, phone numbers, authors, historical trivia, car keys, movie dialogue, song lyrics, I mean, you name it. But something happened. I'm not sure exactly when it began, but the brain I once took so much pride in when I was younger went full Benedict Arnold on me leaving me at the mercy of intellectual battles that I'd always taken for granted. My brain, that ungrateful lump of protoplasm, switched sides. Now the thing regularly and actively works against me. 
I can't tell you how often I get up, go into the kitchen, and just stand there. My mouth hangs open. Start looking from side to side. Sometimes I, I just give up and go back to doing whatever it was I was doing before, if I can remember what it was I was doing by this time. And it might be another hour before I can recall what I needed to do in the kitchen in the first place. Car keys, iPhone, remote control, AirPods. I mean, I'm forever hunting things I could swear I laid down right there. But here's the good news. I worked out a nifty little system to thwart my backstabbing brain. It's pretty radical, really. may not have thought about it. It's kind of an elegant solution, if I, don't, if I do say so myself. So here's another freebie from Uncle Derek. Put everything back in the same place. Every time. That way you know exactly where things are supposed to be when you need them. And it works amazing, amazingly well, right? Until it doesn't. Here's what happens. I go to get the thing that decores the apples, you know, and cuts them into perfect little sections. You know what I'm talking about? Right, so I go to the cupboard, and what do you know? It's not there. So the next scheme in my rapidly deteriorating bag of tricks is to do the obvious. Honey, have you seen the apple thing? And she says, did you look for it? It should be in the cupboard. And I said, of course I looked for it. Well, where did you look? I looked in the cupboard. Did you look anywhere else? Now see, and this is what really gets to me. Why would I look anywhere else? It's supposed to be in the cupboard. That's why I always put it back in the cupboard. I, I don't like having these conversations any more than she does. And the more I think about it, the angrier I get. Of course, none of this is her fault. I mean, it's probably one of the kids. I mean, I put these things in the same place every time, and one of the kids uses it, and they don't put it back. I know this is what happened. As surely as the sun rises in the east and the crocuses bloom in spring, the kids didn't put it back. See, but by now I'm really going. I don't even know why we decided to have kids in the first place. <laughs> Can't keep anything nice around here. Now here's where things get really interesting. So I'll start looking around like uh, my wife told me to. Eventually I open the drawer with the kitchen utensils. There it is. Exactly where I put it the night before when I was doing the dishes because I was gonna have an apple later. And really, wouldn't it be just as easy to put it in the drawer as to walk over and pull it out of the cupboard? It's a a flash of memory. I, I can even recollect the mental conversation I had with myself about putting it in the utensil drawer just this once. So I've got all this anger built up inside of me, but it's directed at the wrong person. Have you ever done that? Gotten really upset with somebody only to find out later that your outrage was misdirected? I mean, you're sure that your neighbor's been covertly devastating your prize-winning begonias. I mean, you're positive. There's no doubt about it. You 
you've seen the nasty look she makes when she looks at your lawn? So you seethe and you fume and privately vow to set this scoff law straight. And then you look out at your window one fine summer morning, only to discover that the person destroying your flowers isn't your neighbor, but your 10-year-old practicing his short game with your pitching wedge. Now, I find that infuriating. I mean, here I've whipped up all this righteous indignation, and now it's going to go to waste. Or worse, I'll turn it back on myself. Consequently, in my advancing years, I'm more and more likely to see myself as the wounded party and thereby blame the wrong person. Now, I gotta tell you, this parable in today's gospel is one that I have successfully avoided preaching now for 32 years. And as far as homiletical streaks go, the refusal to get sucked into preaching this one feels like a real accomplishment because it is pretty irksome. I mean, what even is this parable anyway? Jesus seems to be glorifying what, dishonest behavior, doesn't he? I mean, how else do you, could you possibly read it? Well, let's, let's give it a try. So a rich, a rich guy calls his manager into his office. And on the desk in front of him, he's got spreadsheets and old ledgers. They're scattered like torn shingles after a hurricane. And he says, you know, word on the street is you've been skimming off the top. What, are you going to steal from me? Nobody steals from me. You're lucky I don't have you Tony soprano for this. Punch out. You're fired. Now, one point we could highlight, the text doesn't say that the manager was actually skimming off the top, only that the boss said he's heard the manager's been skimming off the top. I mean, you can call it, as your pew Bible does, the parable of the dishonest manager, but the text is much less definitive. So the manager shuffles out the door, and now he's flailing about for what he's going to do next. I mean, he's pretty sure he's got marketable trade uh, that's gone. He's got nothing more to do. And even more than that, his managerial reputation is shot. He's too weak to dig, too ashamed to beg. He takes a sobering look at his life and he realizes that he's gotten this far in life without being able to actually do anything. Most ministers I know complain about the same thing, actually. You get to a point in your life and you go, I'm not really actually good for anything. I don't, I'm not trained to do anything helpful. But he sees that he's got nothing. He, doesn't, he can't do anything. And like Dewey Finn in School of Rock, he thinks those who can't do teach and those who can't teach, teach Jim. And then he thinks, you know, strike that. Since all I'm really is a is a glorified bag man. I might just as well keep collecting the boss's debts, but, but, but I'll give everybody a discount. Now let's pause for a moment and look at the manager's motives. Why does the text say he wanted to cut everybody a break on this week's protection money? 
Well, if this were a movie, the manager might be trying to cover his vig on, uh, on his debt or, or, or bankrolling a nighttime escape to some island without an extradition treaty. But Luke tells us that what he's really looking for is simply to be welcome in everybody's home when this is all over. Now, you may say that he's only covering his backside, to which I'd reply, well, you know, perhaps that, that, that's all it is. But even so, there is some virtue in caring about staying in relationship with the people that you're linked to in this world. Because when you think about the dynamics involved, at least this guy appears to be something of a sympathetic character. And that's part of the difficulty that interpreters have had for the past 2,000 years. When it comes to this parable, we've tended to side with the rich guy. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm not saying that wealthy and powerful are, are, are always the bad guys. I mean, that's not true. But if you want to be faithful to the thrust of Jewish law, the Hebrew prophets, and the Christian gospels, then the benefit of the doubt in these stories should always be given to those who are poor and powerless. And yet, traditionally, we've tended to associate the characters in Jesus' parables, the wealthy landowners, the absentee landlords, and the kings, with God. I mean, it's almost a reflex. But if we're faithful to the text, we need to stop and ask ourselves, when Jesus told these parables to followers in the first century who lived in Roman-occupied Judea, who would his listeners have most identified with? I mean, who would they find sympathetic in this story, and who would they automatically distrust? Now, when we hear uh, parables in a modern capitalist economy, we generally view the character living in the Judean version of the American dream as either God or the hero of the story. And it's always the shifty wretches, the tenants, the managers, the workers in the vineyard that we're inclined to see as villains. But here's the thing, if you ask 10 people in a crowd where Jesus was telling parables about who the hero and the villain were in this parable, most likely all 10 people would tell you just the opposite of what we traditionally thought. Why? Because in the world that they lived in, the average person's experience of folks with wealth and power was almost always negative. See, Jesus' world was significantly different from our own. Different politics, different economic realities, different social arrangements. Rich people got rich in Jesus' world almost exclusively by exploiting and strong-arming the poor. Kings were typically greedy ruffians whose only contact with ordinary people was through taxation or state-sponsored violence, and absentee landlords reached that status by foreclosing on family-owned lands. They weren't really popular. Now, asking first-century Judeans to root for the rich person would be like uh, trying to get houseless people in downtown Louisville to cheer for Mark Zuckerberg or, or, or Elon Musk. Why, why root for them? They, they, they've already got everything they need. So when it comes to time to identify the heroes and the villains in Jesus' parables, we're more than likely conditioned to bestow honor on the mob boss and the loan shark, which means we're often guilty of blaming the wrong person. 
Now let's take off our 21st century suburban American glasses and put on our first century struggling Judean peasant glasses and have another look at this parable. See, Jesus' hearers would have had much more in common with the manager than with the aggrieved guy with deep pockets. Because remember, like as not, virtually every member of Jesus' audience would have found themselves at one time or another on the short end of the political, economic, social stick. So we need a more developed view of what's really going on in this parable. And the fact that the manager had to negotiate with his boss's debtors, for instance, means that the boss's estate is vast which means the boss is a financial and therefore political and social big shot. But see, here's the wrinkle. Under Jewish law, charging interest on a loan is forbidden. Any interest, even minimal interest, is prohibited. It's called usury, and it applied in the law only to fellow Jews. So the reason that Jewish law forbids usury is thought to be twofold. Firstly, they want to make sure that the prosperous realize the responsibility they have to help the indigent, if not by gifts, then at least by free loans. And secondly, that interest, or excessive interest, was seen to lie at the root of social ruin and was therefore to be outlawed uh, outlawed in toto. Initially, the law said that getting caught charging interest on a loan meant you forfeited the right not only to collect the interest, but you forfeited even the right to collect the original capital for the loan. I mean, you, getting nailed for usury not only affected your bottom line finances, but it also made you a social pariah whose word couldn't be trusted. You could no longer be a witness in a court proceeding. You couldn't take an oath because you had already proven that nobody could trust you anyway. But see, now, that's a problem for enterprising loan sharks, isn't it? I mean, if you can't charge interest, what incentive do you have to loan money at all? Yeah, the whole prosperous ought to help the indigent by giving them free loans. Yeah, well, that's a pipe dream, isn't it? I mean, if you're the boss, how do you get around it without being branded the next Jeff Bezos? Here's what happens. You hide the interest in the purchase price on the contract. It's a kind of Jewish, ancient Jewish value-added tax. According to William Herzog, these hidden interest charges were typically 25% on money to 50% on goods. So, so what the manager seems to be doing in this parable when he reduces the amount owed by the debtors by 20 to 50% is refunding the illegal hidden debt that's owed by the boss to the very folks who've been fleeced all these years by rich and powerful people. You, you know, the folks who have enough money to hire shady accountants and good lobbyists. He gives them back the money that the owner had been stealing from them through these hidden interest on the loans. 
But in this case, the manager has the boss over a bit of a barrel. See, if the boss lets it go and does nothing, well, then he's going to lose a bunch of money. But when word finally gets back to the boss about what the manager's done in refunding the hidden tax, because the word always gets back, the boss will lose not only the illegal interest, but also something even more critical in that world. He's going to lose his reputation. Now, from here on out, the boss can no longer charge the hidden interest because of what the manager has done. Because everybody now knows this is his practice. He can't do it anymore. He's going to lose a significant portion of his wealth to the poor peasants that he had been exploiting because they now know he's been sticking it to them all along. And how does the boss respond when he figures out how he's been outmaneuvered by the manager? Well, the NRSV translates the boss's grudging respect for the manager's shrewdness, but that word is probably better translated as wisdom. In other words, he knows he's been outplayed, and he can do really nothing but tip his hat to his manager. And what the text calls unrighteous or dishonest wealth doesn't originate with the manager's creativity in accounts payable, it's just the instrument that the manager uses to unmask a system that's been built on unrighteous and dishonest wealth. In other words, the manager has successfully used the tools of a corrupt system to dismantle that system. Jesus closes with this well-known proverb, you can't serve two masters, you've got to serve one or the other, you can't serve God and wealth. But see, here's, I would like to suggest that Jesus isn't just talking about wealth in the sense of people with money. He's talking about the systems of, of domination, exploitation, and violence that keeps money in the hands of the powerful and out of the grabby hands of the perpetually unsatisfied poor. Because, you know, they're always complaining about, oh, they don't have enough to eat or shelter or anything like that. See, Jesus turns that whole way of conceiving the world on its head, the one in which the manager, the, the boss, has all the power, and rightly so, to a new world in which the systems that prop the manager up are no longer available because of some enterprising folks like the manager willing to take it down. In other words, Jesus winds up celebrating Robin Hood and trashing the sheriff of Nottingham. Now, and remember, here's the kicker. In Jesus' first public sermon in the book of Luke, he claims that now is the year of the Lord's favor, right? It's arrived back in Luke 4. Of course, that re refers to the year of Jubilee, the time every 50 years when all debts are canceled and stolen land is returned to all of its rightful owners. And Jesus says in this parable that the reign of God is going to look more like the manager's world than the boss's selfish world. It's going to look more like a world where the stolen is returned than a world in which the stuff gets stolen in the first place. See, and you and I, we're spiritual heirs 
of the manager. We're inheritors of this legacy of toppling unjust systems so that the people who've gotten taken for a ride since the world began will finally have a system that works for them. See, we just have to remember who the hero of the story is. And we have to quit blaming the wrong person. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.